Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Grok Science Radio Show. I am Chenan Zhang. Now imagine the brain of a newborn infant processing the lights, sounds, and smells of a strange and unknown world, trying to make sense of all of these sensations for the first time. By week one, the baby is able to recognize her parents' voices. By week two, the baby is able to distinguish between bright 3D objects from flat black and white ones. By week nine, sounds fascinate her and the baby will train her eyes on your mouth as you speak and move around. By week 12, the baby has realized that she has hands and can wave them in the air or bring them close to her face. All this rapid development is possible with brain plasticity, which is the changes that occur in our brain that allows us to learn and function in response to new experiences. Today's interview is with Dr. Michael Merzenich on plasticity of the brain. Dr. Merzenich is Professor Emeritus of Neuroscience at the University of California, San Francisco, a member of the National Academy of Sciences and co-founder of the Scientific Learning Corporation. Here he talks about how our prior belief of the brain as a static and unchanging organ is being replaced by a new understanding of how the brain changes throughout life. Well, we used to think, Jenna, that the brain was plastic when you were a kid or when you were a little kid, an infant, and then it basically froze itself. You basically, the, the computer grew up and beyond a certain age, uh, every neuron knew what to do and the brain was in a sense hardwired. And we now know that this is just not true. We now know that there is an early period in which plasticity is unregulated. It's just competitive, involves competitive processes. It's not really being controlled by the brain. But very early on, the brain learns how to control its plasticity, and it basically only allows plastic changes to occur in the brain in a sense when the brain determines that that change is good for it. In a sense, we call that change, all that change, learning, because learning is all about the brain changing in ways that the brain is interpreting to be, in a sense, good for it. So the brain has machinery in it that is controlling when when it's going to permit change, and then when you succeed at whatever you're doing from the brain's own determination of what success is, or when the brain judges something to be really important, it actually revises itself. And what is changing fundamentally is its wiring, its local wiring. It's favoring those things that contribute to success and disfavoring those things that contribute to failure. And it's doing that massively throughout your life. Every time you acquire a new ability, the brain is basically specializing its wiring, and that specialization, those changes account for the evolution of the ability. So when you practice anything, basically the brain is evaluating the success of each try in practice, and it's changing, it's strengthening its wiring back in time for to strengthen all of those connections that contributed to that good try. And it does this thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times, and ultimately creates a master processor, an ideal controller for controlling the behavior that you've been working on. And, of course, it's done this for thousands of behaviors that define the operational person that you are, Shannon, or any other person. And one of the beautiful things about this is that we all have different histories, and by this strategy, it's really differentiating us one from the other. So every one of us is unique. We're each special. Each one of us has been a different place in life. We know how to do different things. We have a different cast on our understandings of things. And this all comes from this capacity of the brain to change in life, it, it, the local wiring on a massive scale. In a very young brain, the, the plasticity is unregulated. So you come into the will, for example, and, and you come where 
where people are talking in a particular language. And within a few months, just by the competitive processes of the brain receiving that language, of course, it doesn't matter whether the language is um, Spanish or English or Tagalog or, or San, it doesn't matter. It can't matter. The brain, through competitive plasticity processes, just changes itself to, to sort out those sounds in an ideal way. The brain evolves that control in early life, and when it once it takes control, it only permits plasticity when it's good for it. You know, it doesn't it doesn't just change any input anymore. Now the changes are regulated by the brain. The brain only changes itself when it interprets a change to be for the good. Now, the topic of language learning is of particular interest to me because I am bilingual. Mandarin was my first language, and I later learned English at the age of seven, which was young enough for it to be relatively painless compared to someone learning a second language as an adult, but old enough for me to remember the challenges of learning a new language. I asked Dr. Merzenich if brain plasticity was involved with this learning process. Well, you learned your English by a different strategy than the phonemic representation of English would be if you had been born with it. You know, there was more learning involved, more brain control involved when you learned it. Because when the brain, when you learn it at an older age, the brain basically has to be continually listening for accuracy. You know, when you're a baby, the brain doesn't know about accuracy. You know, but, but when you learned it, you were continually, in a sense, trying to correct yourself. And you were make, your brain was making continuous judgments about whether you got it right. And it was controlling the plasticity to move you in the direction of getting it right. And, and that's the beauty of the whole process is the brain basically is deciding whether in a sense you're getting it right. And it's evolving itself so that you do better and better and better at whatever its operations are, are focused on. So what exactly is going on in the brain when a child is learning to pick up a spoon and put that food into his mouth? The simple actions of feeding ourselves is one we hardly give a second thought to, but learning such movements actually require precision and control that changes the physical landscape of our brains. This physical landscape is constantly changing as we encounter new experiences and learn new skills. We know, not just from monkeys, but also from studies conducted in humans or in, 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 in other animals like uh, rodents, that if, as I acquire a skill, for example, that involves the use of my hand and manipulation of information from my hand, as in the case of learning to use a spoon, uh, that's a pretty complicated business. I mean, I don't, don't, don't think it, about it being so complicated, but actually the control of a spoon under all of the conditions of use, whether it's, whether it's, you've got to load it, whether, but when you load it, this might be heavy, it might be light. Spoons come in all different forms. You have to keep it upright and, uh, and, uh, you have to get it all the way up to the mouth and dump it out of you into the mouth. That's a pretty complicated, uh, skill. And, and it would be pretty difficult to train a monkey to use a tool like this, I can tell you right now. But, but we don't, we don't have, we don't have much problem with that. If I look in the brain when, when I'm acquiring such a skill, I see unbelievably, uh, beautiful changes. And the changes relate to all aspects of the skill. So for example, if I just look at how the brain is representing information from my skin, I see that practice using a tool like this elaborates it makes it more beautiful. The brain represents the skin that I'm engaging in the skill more magnificently. The area is larger. The area is much more refined in how it's resolving the information from my skin. Not just in location, but in time, because, because the brain can refine how it represents information in fast time. And that's very important for those 
little adjustments in the manipulation to keep the food on the spoon to load it and to bring it to the mouth and so forth. The brain changes the way it represents information from the deep tissues that are controlling the movements of my skin, of my fingers, and the movements of my hand and wrist and arm. I also see them elaborating. I see massive change. I see hundreds and hundreds of millions, billions of, of connections in the brain have been strengthened, changed, altered, some weakened, some strengthened. So I see a really enormous remodeling occurring when I acquire a simple skill like that. And, of course, that's occurred in your brain for acquiring many, 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 many skills. Massive remodeling has occurred. We're incredibly highly specialized by the time we reach the age of 5 or 10 or 20. You know, amazing neurological specialization has occurred through brain plasticity. You see the way in which the activities are mapped in the brain. What is located where? It turns out they're not fixed. They're not fixed locations in the representations of things. And So I can look at where... Information is coming from one little site on the surface of my hand or from the deep structures of my hand at one moment in time and look two weeks later and it's not in the same identical location. And if I can look at how a given, the brain is representing a given area of my hand or a given aspect of movement of my hand in one point in time, it might be represented only over a small area and then I exercise and it's represented over a very large area. The brain represents things plastically. You know, it, it, it has this ability to adapt its machinery to fit the task in hand, but it's also changing its functional characteristics. When I said you change the way it's receiving information of time, initially it might respond only sluggishly. The neurons respond only when information is moving on the hand, or let's say relatively slowly, or changing on the hand relatively slowly. But because it has to make finite, fast adjustments to the little changes of the pressures that come from that spoon, its handle, uh, pretty soon the brain is responding very efficiently, very rapidly to changes that are occurring on my, it's now operating at high speed. And this, this act is changing its chemistry. It's changing the nature of its responses. It, that, that, these are expressed physically and chemically in the brain that, that, to specialize it for this task. So plasticity is actually occurring in multiple dimensions. It's expressed in the physical anatomy, in, in the structure of the brain. Synapses get bigger, synapses get stronger, new synapses emerge, the wiring gets more effective, a whole series of physical changes. Then it's, then it's also changing in its characteristics and its chemistry in ways that allow it to respond in greater detail and with greater re re rapidity and so forth. In addition to the remodeling that occurs in the brain during normal cognitive development, plasticity can also play a role in the rehabilitation of individuals that experience brain injury as an adult or children who experience learning difficulties either due to birth defects or trauma. Dr. Merzenek goes into detail next about what could go wrong during the course of brain development, what it teaches us about brain plasticity, and what can be done about it. If the brain is injured for whatever reason, the basis of recovery from injury has got to be the brain has to, in a sense, remodel itself. You have to engage this power to make the best of what you have left given the, in the, given the fact of the injury. And, and basically that remodeling can occur on a substantial scale through the operations of these plastic processes in the brain. It also bears powerful implications for how the brain basically can be driven in distorting directions uh, with the emergence of a psychotic illness. It also powerfully relates to why the brain with 
inherited faults or because the childhood is very uh, uh, severely uh, distressed or or is the child is subject to abuse or the child is very impoverished in their early experiences, how that child can be disadvantaged by it in developmental dis- disorders or disabilities or limitations. So there's very powerful Im- implications, not just for how we're doing, if we're doing fine and normal, and then, you know, explains a lot about the elegance of our operations and what we are, but it also has powerful ha- implications for people that aren't doing so well and where that actually comes from in their brain by the processes in their brain. We focused on two classes of children. We focused on children that have uh, learning problems in school that uh, that come from either a disadvantaged early childhood or from uh, from genetic weakness. Uh, and uh, we've, fo- we've trained about four and a half to five million children now in the world who have this kind of history. And we can drive improvement. We're primarily focused, focusing on their capacities to operate in language and reading because that's so critical to their uh, young uh, academic success and to their cognitive abilities. And we can drive very strong improvements in the great majority of those children that move their brain in the corrective direction. And what we're trying to do in that case is to actually drive the brain neurologically. We're trying to make up for either lost time because their childhood has been disadvantaged or we're trying to basically help them overcome by, by using the plasticity of the brain the weaknesses that have contributed by early in, in, uh, genetic inherited weaknesses. Now, the second class of kids we've been interested in are kids that have a more kind of more disastrous childhood. Either they've been subject to abuse or, or severe neglect, and this is damaging to the brain, and these children have all kinds of weaknesses that are going to be expressed in, in their later life. Or the child, children have a more severe uh, developmental disorder that comes from genetics that lead to more to substantial catastrophe. You could say the children that have autism among us or that are very severely impaired and uh, are destined to really struggle in life. We're trying to help those children as well. All of our training is delivered by uh, a computer or a smart device. So it's on a computer or an iPad or a, a pad of some sort, or a, and increasingly we're trying to get things onto uh, smartphones, but mostly it's kids sit at computers. And the, the computer is very valuable to us because it can control the training in a way that meets the conditions that very efficiently drive changes in the brain. So the training is game-like because, you know, games are a kind of environment in which you're learning rapidly and, and basically mastering abilities relatively rapidly. We can actually, we actually, they're not exactly like games because games aren't as efficient as they could be from the point of view of driving brain change that really lasts and, and changes your fundamental characteristics. And then we have to, we have specific neurological things we're trying to change that we know are disadvantaged, that we know are holding the kid back. So we really focus on those like a laser and try to drive those things correctly because we know they're underlying the kid or the adult's problem. It is used in thousands of American school districts, this kind of training, and in, in, in primarily targeting these children. And we know that if children are trained in this way, that many more of them uh, reach a level of reading proficiency than would otherwise be the case. And because the fundamental problem in reading failure, of course, is not the fact that the children don't understand what reading is about, or the usual problem is that the child has not 
evolved the representation of the sound parts of words in the normal way because of early problems in their development or developmental history. And in, in, in which the translation in reading makes sense or can be accomplished with high efficiency. So it's not so much necessarily training the child directly to read. You can actually drive very strong improvements in readings on the billet, on the average if you train a child to operate more effectively as a, as a listener to sounds and language. And, and, uh, and, but then we also train children in the arts of reading itself because, and you can make a big difference in a large proportion of children that struggle to learn to read. The training program I'm, I'm talking about now is called Fast Forward, which is a program that was created by a company called Scientific Learning Corporation, which I found co-founded uh, about uh, 13 or 14 years ago. Uh, Brain HQ is a program that's designed to apply to be applied in adults. Uh, any, you could say most of the people that use it are between uh, roughly 20 and uh, 20 and 100. The main target is to help people have stronger, faster, more effective, more competent brains to be smarter, to be more effective, and to be have brain, uh, uh, brain health in better stead to an older age in life. One of the reasons I wanted to interview Dr. Merzenek for today's show is due to a research project I recently worked on as a PhD student looking at rates of mental decline in aging individuals and trying to determine genetic factors involved and why some people experience greater rates of decline than others. The findings of my project seem to indicate that genetic factors don't play as big of a role as environmental factors. Dr. Merzenek has more to add to this topic. That's actually a great insight, Shannon. And, and, and in fact, there were about 50 uh, conditions that are known, or things that are known to occur to people in life, somewhere in the passage of their life, that that adds uh, years of risk to an earlier onset of senility in older age. And so there are many, many factors that can occur in the environment in the life that contribute. I've actually written a book about this, uh, about this general subject. The book is called Softwired, and it's about brain plasticity and about uh, the implications of, of of the science, you could say, for aging, and and it points out that th that these factors make sense if you think of them as all contributing to an increase of in, in to the increase in the noisiness of the older brain in ways that degrade its processing and that can contribute to its decline. So it, this is a complicated subject to end, but 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 actually, where your brain in decline is also represents. Uh, a sort of active uh, negative plasticity. Your brain is actually uh, adjusting itself when you get older, commonly, to make the most out of a, a, uh, a uh, degrading condition. And what's occurring in the brain as, as it gets older is that the processes in, in the brain itself are becoming noisier and noisier, less and less controlled, less and less precise. And that because the brain has to get the answer right, it's actually adjusting its characteristics again in a negative direction. It's it's basically got to slow down. It's got to take longer to make decisions about what it's just seen or heard or feel felt. And uh, so plasticity is also contributing to the loss of ability when you get older, just as it contributes to the growth of ability when you reach move towards your peak in a younger life. It's compensation, but one of the amazing things about it is, is that it involves processes that are reversible. So you can take a brain in, in, the, in, in near the end of life, and you can engage it by training, and you can still improve all of its operational characteristics, just like you can, just like you improved it as the brain grew up. 
you know, in a sense, you can go back in the direction of a high-functioning brain by appropriately engaging it in training. And when you do that, basically, you have a brain that's rejuvenated, a brain that's operating as if it's much younger. We have a large project in which we're trying to identify people, uh, define their state of risk for, for the onset of senility sometime later in life. And uh, we're certainly interested in helping people that have inherited weakness. We're also interested in, in, in people that have had things happen in their life that are putting put them in at risk for trouble. And then we're trying to train them in a way that keeps them safe. So we have strategies by which we can engage people continuously, 15 or 20 or 25 minutes a day, in which we think we can keep them safe longer in life and maybe safe indefinitely. So we're trying to determine whether that is in fact true. Uh, certainly we're trying to help people have a better uh, adult life by increasing their brain power. I mean, that's something that we're doing on a, on a large scale, and we're training many, many thousands of people in ways that are designed to improve the quality of their life and their brain power. We're also working at a variety to try to help people that have a variety of neurological and psychiatric conditions. So the largest projects involve training people that have schizophrenia, and we now know that we can drive very substantial improvements that reduce the problems that they have and increase the likelihood that they can return again back into society with a successful independent life. We're also trying to train in ways that we think will prevent schizophrenia by strengthening the brain processes in a young person that's at risk for onset. If you could stop the disease from happening by giving them a stronger brain by changing it plastically, that would be a great thing, and we think we can do that. We're also training people that have head brain injury that comes from a variety of causes. So we have a large trial now underway in which people have been, in a sense, bumped on the head. They have a traumatic brain injury. Uh, either from playing something like uh, sports or, or from um, many people that have been hit from Iraq and Afghanistan have been exposed to explosions or been whacked in the head there for a variety of reasons, and then civilians as well. We also have people that have brains that have been impacted because of, uh, of infection. So one of our large studies involves people that have a history of HIV-AIDS where the infection can involve the, process, the, the brain itself. So we have a whole series of things like this in which we're trying to get to problems that affect millions of people and uh, see if we can help them have a better, stronger brain. And uh, and in general, what we see in these studies is that we can. We're coming to the end of our show today on brain plasticity. Before we go, here are a few more words from Dr. Merzenich on what is the role of brain plasticity in our everyday life and in the formation of what is uniquely you. Let me just say what its significance is to you, Sean. It accounts for you. It accounts for your operational abilities. It, it underlies your, the evolution of the person that you are. You have, you have lots of special abilities, knowledge, understanding, uh, skills that are you. And it is a product of where you've been in life as that, how that passage in life has changed your brain. And you are special. Nobody quite like you. So you have this power, Chinan, you have this power in your brain to change it by what you do, by how you lead your life. In a sense, you're in charge. And you can you can drive your brain in improving and correcting directions by how you live your life. Or you can uh, be the a bystander and watch it deteriorate and uh, and uh, witness yourself gradually going into the tank. And I strongly recommend that your audience thinks about taking control 
and doing what they can do uh, to uh, to drive their brain in a strengthening and corrective direction if necessary. I've written about this in my book, which again is called Softwired, and it's sort of a explanation of this science and an explanation about how they might use this science maybe to to help themselves. You have been listening to an interview on brain plasticity with Dr. Michael Marzenek, Professor Emeritus of Neuroscience at the University of California, San Francisco, a member of the National Academy of Sciences and co-founder of the Scientific Learning Corporation. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I am Chanan Zhang, and this is the Grok Science Radio Show.